every week. Um, Tony and Jen, just having you here today, um, I feel like we have uh, family back home with us. Tony and Jen, I can't believe this thing started for them uh, six years ago, Jen. Can you believe it? And you talk about partners. Um, Tony and Jen, I just feel like at the deepest level, uh, we're partnering with you guys. And what Tony laid out today, those are the marching orders for this church. Right there. So clear. And so... I just strongly encourage you to just hear from God and, 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 and go and do what God is putting on your heart to go and do, whether it's at your own street corner or whether it's through the discipling of Tony and Jen to teach you how to do it at their street corner. Uh, that's Crossroads, okay? This right here is just a little piece, small little piece, okay? All right, one other thing I want to just put out there. This is another thing I'm, I'm really excited about. This summer I'm going to be leading, I don't want to call it a trip. It will be an intense experience in Israel. And it'll be two weeks. And I want it to be for, first of all, the people that I'm pouring my life into. And we already have about 15, maybe 20 of those people that are signed up. And then second of all is Crossroads. And so there are probably 15 more spots left. If you're interested at all, it'll be June 18 to July 4. And I have information right up here that you can just get. Okay, we got a lot to cover this morning. I know that scares some of you who like to look at your clocks. Actually, we're not that church, are we? <laughs> you don't go to Crossroads if you're like, we're going to get out of here in an hour. Um, but let's dive into this, okay? Genesis 41. This is where we're going to be today. The gospel according to Joseph. How are you doing, Richard? Good to see you. Let's stand for the reading of God's word. I'm going to start at verse 1. When two years had passed, of course, passed, Joseph has been put back into a dungeon. And there he is. When two years had passed, Pharaoh had a dream. He was standing by the Nile. When out of the river there came up seven cows, sleek and fat, and they grazed among the reeds. After them, seven other cows, ugly and gaunt, came up out of the Nile, stood beside those on the river bank. And the cows that were ugly and gaunt ate up the seven sleek, fat cows. Pharaoh woke up, fell asleep again. He had a second dream. Seven heads of grain, healthy and good, were growing on a single stalk. After them, seven other heads of grain sprouted, thin and scorched by the east wind. By the way, the east wind in the Bible is always a reference to the finger of God. East wind is in the book of Job. East wind is what parts the Red Sea. East wind is what came and took away Jonah's, Sukkos. East wind's all over the Bible. It's a reference to the finger of God. Then scorched by the east wind, the thin heads of grain swallowed up the seven healthy full heads. Then Pharaoh woke up. It had been a dream. In the morning, his mind was troubled. 
So he sent for all the magicians and wise men of Egypt. Pharaoh told them his dreams, but no one could interpret them. Then the chief cupbearer said to Pharaoh, Today I'm reminded of my shortcomings. Pharaoh was once angry with his servants. He imprisoned me and the chief baker in the house of the captain of the guard. Each of us had a dream the same night, and each dream had a meaning of its own. Now a young Hebrew was there with us, a servant of the captain of the guard. We told him our dreams. He interpreted them for us, giving each man the interpretation of his dream. And things turned out exactly as he interpreted to us. Well, I was restored to my position, and the other man was impaled. So Pharaoh said to Joseph, sent for Joseph. So Pharaoh sent for Joseph, and he was quickly brought from the dungeon. When he had shaved and changed his clothes, he came before Pharaoh. Pharaoh said to Joseph, I had a dream. No one could interpret it. But I have heard that you are the man. (laughs) I heard that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. (laughs) Don't you love this response? I cannot do it, Joseph replied to Pharaoh. But God can. God will give Pharaoh the answer he desires. And then Pharaoh said to Joseph, in my dream, and we don't need to read all that, but jump down to 25, he tells a dream to Joseph. Then in verse 25, when Joseph said to Pharaoh, the dreams of Pharaoh are one and the same. God has revealed to Pharaoh what he is about to do. The seven good cows are seven good years. The seven good heads of grain are seven good years. They are one and the same dream. The seven lean, ugly cows that came up afterward are seven years. So are the seven worthless heads of grain, scorched by the east wind. They are seven years of famine. It is just as I said to Pharaoh, God has shown Pharaoh what he is about to do. Seven years of great abundance are coming through the land of Egypt, but seven years of famine will follow them. Then all the abundance of Egypt will be forgotten. The famine will, be, will ravage the land. The abundance in the land will not be remembered because the famine that follows will be so severe. The reason the dream was given to Pharaoh in two forms is that the matter has been firmly decided by God, and God will do it soon. And now let Pharaoh look for a discerning and wise man and put him in charge of the land of Egypt. Let Pharaoh appoint commissioners over the land and take a fifth of the harvest of Egypt during the seven years of abundance. They should collect all the food of these good years that are coming and store up the grain under the authority of Pharaoh to be kept in the cities for food. This food should be kept and reserved for the country to be used during the seven years of famine that will come upon Egypt so that the country may not be ruined by famine. I'm telling you, whether you are with me or not on this, that is amazing. You talk about a download from God and wisdom. I mean, here's the first economist right here, Joseph, just pouring out of his mouth. The plan seemed so good to Pharaoh and to all his officials. So Pharaoh asked them, can anyone find a guy like this? And then Pharaoh said to Joseph, since God has made all of this known to you, there is no one like you, Joseph. And you shall be in charge of my palace, and all my people are to submit to your orders, only with respect to the throne. Will I be greater than you? This is God's word. You can be seated. All right, now to understand the whole Joseph story, there are two themes that we have to see. And these themes, really, they come in the form of a picture. First, we need to see the theme of the coat. 
The coat here is again in this text, as we're going to see. And the coat, if you remember, it, it signifies the special status of the firstborn son. In fact, this is the significance, whether you know this or not, that every person in this room craves. Because we've been made to be firstborn sons, whether you know that or not, and our heart craves it. Because this status basically comes with the blessing from those most important people in our life, namely our fathers, who look at us and say, there's no one like you. No one. Our hearts need that. They crave it. It's the coat. And so as we learn, you know, Joseph first gets this coat from his father Jacob. He then loses it. When his jealous brothers, they, they, they violently rip it off him. They then throw him into a pit. He's sold as a slave. He lands in Egypt, in Potiphar's house. It's here as a slave in Potiphar's house, a household that would have included hundreds of slaves. But Potiphar notices Joseph. Because the text says... The Lord was powerfully alive in Joseph. This is what Potiphar noticed. So Potiphar takes this slave, makes him master of his entire estate. And in essence, Joseph gets the coat again. He gets the status, the significance of being the firstborn son. So life is good again for Joseph. He gets his life back. His feet are on the ground. He has purpose and responsibility. He's using the gifts that that God has given to him. And in fact, the text says that God is with Joseph and that Joseph was successful in everything he did. And then boom! Just boom! In a moment, he's pushed back down again. This time even further. All for an act of obedience. All because he was faithful to God. I was thinking about this. It's it's one thing to get pushed down once. But it's still another thing to get pushed down a second time. I mean, after things are, are, are settling down a bit and everything's getting normal again, then all of a sudden, boom! Have you been there? Now notice the second time, though, that Joseph, this time, voluntarily gives up the coat. The first time, it's violently ripped off him, but this time, he he makes the choice to just give it up. Because the second time, he's faced with this choice, do I choose this wicked and sinful thing with Potiphar's wife? Where if I do that, I can keep my life, I can keep my status, I can keep my position. But if I say no to that, I lose it all. What a, what, what a thing it is when a person can just voluntarily 
give up the coat or break open the alabaster jar or take their Isaac and and lay it down on the altar or make the choice, not because someone pushed you down, but you make the choice, I'm going to go down. Because that's the second theme that we need to see in the Joseph story if we're going to understand it. It's this theme of going down. See, Joseph's life, it's always going down. He gets pushed into pits. He gets thrown down into dungeons. He gets cast down into Egypt. This is the trajectory in which Joseph's life is on. Now think about this. Going down is not only a major theme of Joseph, but it's also a major theme of the Bible because God's people, as you read later too, they're going to have to go down into Egypt. Jesus himself is going to go down into Egypt. He's going to have to leave the father. He's going to have to become a slave. He's going to have to lose the palace. He's going to have to get the pit, the ultimate pit. In fact, look at how this reads in, uh, second, in Philippians 2. The correlations between Joseph and Jesus are staggering. Who being in the very, very nature of God did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage, but rather he made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness and being found in the appearance of a man. He humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. dropping things this morning. (laughs) This is the trajectory that God calls all of us to go. We are all called to go down. Do you know that? See, you and I, we live in a world that constantly tells us we need to go up. It's all about going up. It's all about making our way to the top. But if you and I are going to find God's path and walk into it, his path always leads downward. So the question that I ask my heart today, and I want you to ask is, is your life going down? Has your life ever gone down? Have you ever personally experienced the pit? See, in God's economy, the way up is the way down. The way down is the way up. And you're never going to go up unless you first go down. That's why in Philippians 2, the text that I just read about Jesus, it doesn't end with, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. I mean, that's the ultimate bottom. But once Jesus gets to the ultimate bottom, there's that important word, therefore. Therefore. Because he went down, God brought him up. God exalted him to the highest place, gave him the name that is above every name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Before there is exalting, there's always humbling with God. 
Now, this biblical imagery of, of going down to Egypt, we see it in Joseph. Later, you're going to see it in God's people. We're going to see it in Jesus. Jesus himself has to go down to Egypt. It's in the Bible because to get God, to get the promised land, to ascend the hill of the Lord, to get the Father's coat, to experience his kiss, to see his face, to hear his voice, we must go down. Our lives must fall into the ground and die to me so that God can take me and raise me and seat me in the heavenly places at his right hand. That's the path. And so here's Joseph again. He's in this place, in this dungeon. It's not fun. It has to probably be even more despairing the second time. I want to talk a little bit just for a second about what this probably felt like because some of you are there right now. And the questions that we ask in this place are are questions like, who are you, God? Are you there? Do you care? And why do you allow these kind of things, God? And can I trust you? See, because it's in this place where we experience these tensions. First, it's the tension between my puny perception... Because all I can see really are the walls of the pit and the dungeon. I, 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 I have the moment. But God sees the beginning from the end. And he sees this little thing in light of the whole. And so there's this huge gap that exists between my little view and God's big view. And we're called to live much of our life in this gap, aren't we? And see, it's here where we're confronted with this second tension. The tension of, who put me here? Did I do this? Or did God do this? And who's going to get me out? Is it me? Or is it God? See, there's this tension that exists between my actions and God's actions, between my choice and, and, and God's sovereignty. And the Bible calls us to live in this tension. And we didn't read this, but you can look at the previous chapter that when Joseph's in this dungeon, he makes his plan on how to get out. And you know, we need to do the same thing. We can't just quit. We can't just throw in the towel. We need to keep living. We need to keep striving. We need to keep choosing. We need to keep planning. But we do all of this knowing that there's a God who's greater, whose ways are greater, whose plans are greater. A God who loves me. A God who loves you. And a God who's orchestrating everything, everything for my good and for your good. 
See, Joseph, years later, he's going to say this to his brothers. What you guys intended for evil, God intended this for good. And what we can come to see through the Joseph story is that God is working out, perfectly orchestrating his plan for Joseph's life. There's not a single incident that happens by chance. Everything is in the hand of God. And that's true for you too. But living in this gap and living with these tensions, it's a life of faith. It's childlike trust. Knowing that although this is all I can see, I need to trust him. That what some people intended for evil, or even what I intended for evil, God can take all of that and make it into good, great, great good. Because in a moment, God's going to raise Joseph up (laughs) to become one of the most powerful people in the world. And literally, to be the world's savior, small-ass savior. But Joseph is going to be raised up to be the world's savior. Because Egypt at this time is the world's superpower. They're the cultural center, the intellectual center, the economic center of the world. Pharaoh, you need to know, is more than just a president or a king. He is the king of all kings. He is the lord of all lords. He's God. Or a God. That's how he's seen. And God did not bring Joseph to Egypt so that Joseph could run Potiphar's house. God brought Joseph to Egypt so that Joseph could run all of Egypt. So that through Joseph, all the families of the earth would be blessed. Where did we hear that before? That's God's promise to Abraham. Now we're seeing it. Of course, we know the story. We just read it. Pharaoh is haunted by this nightmare. None of his Egyptian priests or sages can interpret it. However, Pharaoh has this cupbearer who spent time with Joseph where? The dungeon. So if the dungeon never happened, Joseph's rise to power, his exalting never happens. So in this moment, Joseph goes from rags, literally rags, to riches. He goes from a pit to a palace. He goes from a slave to a son. Firstborn son to Pharaoh. In fact, look at how Genesis 41, 41 reads. We didn't read this part, but let's get to it now. Because it reads just like Philippians 2, 9 through 11. So Pharaoh said to Joseph, just like God says about Jesus in Philippians 2, 9 through 11, I I thereby put you in charge of the whole land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh took his signet ring from his finger. He put it on Joseph's finger. He dressed him in robes of fine linen. Ooh, there's the coat again. Put a gold chain around his neck. He had him ride in a chariot as second in command. And the people shouted before him, Don't look at your NIV. I'm sorry, I hate trashing the NIV because I love the NIV. 
But it, it doesn't say make way for Joseph. It says bow the knee in the original language to Joseph. So wherever Joseph goes, they're bowing the knee to him. This is God's way, isn't it? God chooses the foolish things of this world to shame the wise. He takes the lowly things of this world to shame the powerful and the mighty. You know, a lot of people read this and they say, their heart says, their, their mouth might even say it too. I don't think that many people are bold enough to say it, but I think our hearts think this a lot. I want that. I want to be like Joseph. I want my life to be used the way God uses Joseph. I love what A.W. Tozer said. He said, before God can use a man greatly, he must first wound him deeply. Has he wounded you? See, don't just seek to be used greatly unless you're first willing to be wounded deeply. We see this over and over again in the Bible. We see it in Abraham. We see it in Isaac. We see it in Jacob. Now we're seeing it in Joseph. You're going to see it in Moses. You're going to see it in David. This is God's pattern over and over again. We see it, so we shouldn't be surprised then When it comes to the ultimate savior of the world, you talk about being wounded and crushed. I read this thing to myself every now and then just to remind myself of God's ways. When God wants to drill a man and thrill a man and skill a man, when God wants to mold a man to play the noblest part. When God yearns with all his heart to create so great and bold a man that all the world should be amazed and watch his methods, watch his ways. How God ruthlessly perfects whom he royally elects. How he hammers him and hurts him and with mighty blows converts him. And the trial shapes of clay, which only God understands. And while his tortured heart is crying, and he lifts beseeching hands, how he bend but never breaks, when his good God undertakes, how God uses whom he chooses, in which every purpose fuses him. By every act, God induces him to try his splendor out. God knows what he's about. And God knows exactly what he is about in Joseph's life. And he knows exactly what he is about in our life. The question is, can we trust him? When our life falls into the pit, can we say like David, I I, I waited upon the Lord. I trusted him. Childlike trust. I love Joseph. I want you to love Joseph. 
Because even when Joseph comes before Pharaoh, <laughs> I mean, think about this. You've spent much of your adult life in a pit, then, then in a dungeon, and you finally get your one, your, your one chance. In verse 15, Pharaoh in essence says to him, all right, Joseph, I hear you're the man. Show me you are the man. Show me you can do this. Joseph says, I can't do this. I'm not the man. But God can. Pharaoh, God can do this. See, Joseph's a man who genuinely trusts God. And you know why he trusts God? It's not because his life went up, 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 up. It's because his life went down, 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 down. This is why he can be so humble. This is why he can speak so boldly to Pharaoh. Because Joseph has been broken. He's been tried through the fire of affliction. And what's come out is is pure gold. And see, Pharaoh sees all of this. (laughs) And, well, before that, let me even just show you this. I mean, I want you to see how Joseph speaks to Pharaoh. Because over and over again, it's not I can do this, but it's God can do this. God will do it. Pharaoh, God will give you the answer. God is the one who's going to reveal this mystery. God's going to show Pharaoh then what to do. It's God, 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 God. It's all about God. See, Joseph right now is actually living out the name of his brother Judah. Yahuda, Yahuda means to point praise to God. And Joseph, whether he's in a pit or a palace, he is pointing praise to God. And I'll tell you what, because of this, Joseph has what I'll just call right now spiritual authority. It's oozing from him. He's powerful. He's powerful in the pit. He's powerful before he gets the status and the position. He's powerful as a slave in Pharaoh's presence. Spiritual authority oozing from his life. Why? You take one part suffering. And you take another part, God in his presence. And you put these things together. And what comes out of that is greatness, glory, and spiritual authority. Look at verse 39. This is Pharaoh, who is seen as a god, looking at this slave and saying, there's no one like you. That's the blessing of the firstborn. It's to have someone of of supreme importance look at us, namely those in authority over us like our fathers look at us and say, there's no one like you. See, in Pharaoh, when he sees this spiritual authority that's just oozing from Joseph's life, right in the moment, he knights this Hebrew slave with the status of firstborn son. Look at verse 40. 
You shall be in charge of my palace. All my people are to submit to your orders. Only with respect to the throne will I be greater than you. Then you look at the next verses and you see Joseph gets the ring. He gets the ring of power. He gets the coat. This is language that's right out of Jesus' parable of the prodigal. The father puts the ring on the son's hand. He gets the best coat and puts it on him. And see, when a Jew reads Genesis 41, verse 41, where it says, So Pharaoh said to Joseph, I hereby put you in charge of the whole land of Egypt. And then Pharaoh took the signet ring from his finger, put it on Joseph's finger. He dressed him in the robes of fine linen, put a gold chain around his neck. He had him ride in in chariot as his second in command, and people shouted before him, bow to him. Thus he put him in charge of the whole land of Egypt. When a Jew reads this, they say, this is more than a description of Joseph. This is a description of us and who we are, and our purpose in this world. God made us to be his prince and princesses. We're firstborn sons. He gives us the blessing. There's no one like you. Puts the ring on our finger. Puts the robe on us. See, and to the degree that we know this, that we have a heavenly father who's put the ring on our finger, he's taken the choicest coat and he's placed it on us, to the extent that our hearts hear him blessing us, there's no one like you. To the extent that we know that he's put everything under our feet, everything in our charge, to the degree that this just burns in our heart is the degree to which we're going to exhibit spiritual authority. This is authority. It's not authority that's derived from, I make this much money a year and this is my position in this world at this company It's in you from him. Now it's here that Joseph's life goes up. That trajectory now is upward instead of downward. He's at the top, the very top, instead of the bottom. He's exalted instead of humbled. And see, now this is the part of the story that we all like because now Joseph is on top of the world. He's prosperous, he's successful. I think Americans especially, we love these rags to riches kind of stories. And I think we just assume it's all well, isn't it? Joseph's on top. I'm going to suggest maybe it's not. Because upon his release, Joseph will become thoroughly Egyptianized. The text says the first thing he does is he shaves. That wouldn't be just his beard, but it would also be his whole head. He's, he's now looking like an Egyptian. He's going to wear Egyptian clothes. He's going to speak fluent Egyptian. He's even going to take an Egyptian name. 
Remember, names are more than just labels, but names speak to one's identity and one's purpose in the world. The text even says, we didn't read this, but a few verses later, that he's going to take a pagan wife. Who happens to be daughter to the high priest of the sun god An. But I think the thing that is most, whoa, is that in verse 51, when Joseph finally has his firstborn son, he names him Manasseh, Manasseh, which means to forget. Now, I understand why Joseph would want to forget his past life, but including in this forgetting is the Beit Av. The Beit Av is the house of the fathers. I'll tell you, just living a semester in the Middle East, to a Middle Easterner, the Beit Av is second in importance only after God. It means everything to a Middle Easterner. And think about for Joseph, the Beit Av is Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It's the family that God's put his special grace upon. And it's through this particular family that God's going to bless all the families of the world. And Joseph's like, I'm going to forget that. Added to this. When you read the Bible, you will see that it warns us a whole lot more about the dangers of prosperity than it does the challenges of suffering. That having our life on this trajectory of going up is a much greater threat than the pits in the prisons. We are in much greater danger of forgetting God and forsaking God in prosperity than when we're in the pit. That's why I regularly read Deuteronomy 6, 7, and 8. Because God is saying to his people, as they're about to enter prosperity, the promised land, God says, okay, if you think the desert was your greatest test, he says, you know what, your greatest test now is about to hit you. It's going to be when you ascend, when you go up to the land, the promised land, this land of prosperity that's flowing with milk and honey. When you enter this land where you see cities you didn't build, vineyards you didn't plant, wells you didn't dig, gardens you didn't, didn't put there. God says in Deuteronomy 8, please remember the desert. Remember how the Lord led you in the desert, in this vast and dreadful place, this thirsty and waterless land with its venomous snakes and scorpions, because it's here in this barren place where you got to know me? In fact, the word for know in Deuteronomy 8 in Hebrew is the word yada. Yada is a specific kind of knowing. The word for, for hand is yad. So yada is the kind of knowledge that comes from touch, comes from our senses. It's the kind of knowledge that we get through personal experience. 
And the reason God uses this word is because God says, here, know me. Here's your systematic theology textbook. Get to know me. But rather, he says, I lead you into the desert. I lead you down into pits, into prisons. Because he says, it's there that I'm going to meet you. It's there where you're going to come to know me. You're going to know my hands. You're going to know my touch. You're going to know my manna. You're going to know my maim kayim, my living water. You're going to know me. And then God says something else. I get to know you in this place. This place of testing. I get to know what's in your heart. And you think, God, what do you mean? <laughs> what do you mean you have to test them so you can figure out what's in your heart? No, no, no. So he can know. Yada. He already knows factually what's in, his heart, in our hearts. But he takes us to the desert so he can know what's in our hearts. So he can personally experience it himself. I mean, I know my daughter Kate. She loves me. I know that. But I know it a whole other way when I see her getting off the bus and running to me and wrapping her arms around me and just saying, Dad. But see, it's in the desert where God, or it's in Deuteronomy 8, where, where, where God has what I think are some of the most depressing words in the whole Bible because they just got to know God and now they're going to go into the promised land. But God says, be careful. Do not forget the Lord your God. He says, otherwise, when you eat and are satisfied, when you build fine houses and you settle down, when your herds and flocks grow large, your silver and your gold increase and all that you have is multiplied, when this happens, then your heart will become proud and you will forget the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt. He says, because you're going to say to yourself, my power my strength, my hands produced all this. I did it. It's no longer going to be Yehuda, God, pointing praise to God. And see, this is where we live today. Jonathan Sachs, a leading rabbi today, says this. Hear this. He says, the greatest threat to the Jewish people is not exile or poverty or persecution. Think about that. He's saying that just a few generations removed from six million Jews being killed in concentration camps. And yet he says, the greatest threat to the Jewish people is not exile or poverty or persecution. He says, we not only survive these realities, realities, he says, Jews thrive in them. He says the greatest threat to the Jewish people is prosperity. It's when we go and live in prosperous places like New York that we assimilate and blend into the culture around us and then become no more. That's why he says the hero of the patriarchal family in the end is not Joseph with his dual identity. It's Judah and Judah's descendants who survived the Babylon exile and persecutions. And Holocaust. 
I don't personally know if prosperity affected Joseph this way. In fact, I personally don't think it did because in verse 52, when he names his next son Ephraim, he says, God has made me fruitful in the land of my suffering. I mean, you would think that Joseph would call Egypt the land where I rose to fame and power, but yeah, God made me fruitful there. But Egypt, whether I'm in the pit or the palace, whether I'm on top or on the bottom, this still is the land of my suffering. For Joseph, just like the pit didn't break him, I don't think the palace made him. And I want to end with how this this whole chapter ends. It ends with famine, a world famine. In fact, the whole world almost is going to have to find their way to Egypt or starve to death. Famine is our world. And I'm not so much talking about physical famine, although physical famine is more a reality than we here in the United States realize, but I'm talking about spiritual famine. Whether people are on the top or the bottom, whether they live in palaces or pits, There are so many today who are starving for the food that their hearts so crave. For love, for affection, for blessing, for the coat, for God. A book that was very popular amongst my students when I was a youth pastor was a book by Douglas Coupland, who was a Gen X author at that time, and He wrote this book, Life After God, and in this book, he kept hinting at this big secret that he had that he he didn't want to tell anybody, but he kept talking about it, this secret, this secret. And finally, at the very end of the book, this is how the book ends. He says, now, here's my secret. I tell it to you with an openness of heart that I doubt I shall ever achieve again. So I pray that you are in a quiet room as you hear these words. My secret is that I need God. That I am sick and can no longer make it alone. I need God to help me to give because I no longer seem capable of giving. I need God to help me to be kind because I no longer seem capable of kindness. I need God to help me to love as I seem so beyond being able to love. In verse 55, Pharaoh says some pretty wise words. Get to Joseph. Because the whole world would be going not just to Egypt, but they would be going to Joseph to buy bread. And like Martin Luther said, all we as Christians are is beggars. (laughs) Just pointing people to where you can get bread. And so I say, get to the greater Joseph, the one who left his father's house, who was despised and rejected by his brothers, who was thoroughly Egyptianized, who took a a pagan bride, us, for himself, who was thrown into a pit, the ultimate pit, but who's highly exalted with the name that is above every name, every knee shall bow, every tongue shall confess he is Lord. And he says, come to me, all ye who are famished. 
and I will give you bread. I'll give you rest. Get to him. You need him. Let's pray. God, your world just so needs people who have gotten to Jesus. Who've taken hold of him. Who've gone his way. Down, down, down. People who ooze this spiritual authority. People who seek because they've been blessed to bless. And I pray, God, that you would raise up in this community Joseph's. People who are willing to go down, 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 down only so you can raise them up. Only so we can point praise to you. Raise them up, Lord. Get us to you right now. In Jesus' name.